All right, kids, you're dismissed. Head downstairs for kids' church up here. Question. You don't need to raise your hands. How many of you were rebellious kids growing up? Mm-hmm. Or how many of you raised rebellious kids? Yeah, I got the hands there, right? This, it's almost like uh, this universal human experience. We understand some kids are just obedient. They're easy. I was basically one of those. Other kids are not that way. That's my brother. Um, <laughs> we were very different. You probably see that. Maybe you look at you and your siblings or at your own children, and there's these pictures. Like, you know, some just butt against the system. They don't want to fall in line. They don't want to do what is expected of them. They don't, you know, this is who we are as a family. Yeah, that's who you are. I'm going to be over here. They almost like to self-identify as the black sheep of the family. It's like there's this innate sense within them that they have to check out the world and this drive to experience that all the things mom and dad have been trying to keep away from them, they have to discover them for, them ver- for their very selves. Uh, and it, it really grows, especially in young people. Like, they get to be seniors in high school, and you start to see they're just ready to go and do their own thing. And then in their early 20s, you just watch from afar sometimes as they're doing that thing, and you're just praying, God, keep them alive and from fatal flaws. I'm in that point with two of my boys right now in their early 20s. And so, because so many of us, like, I don't have to get into the details, but you're all like, oh yeah, I know people with that story. It's what makes this parable that we're going to look at today so, it resonates with so many people. In fact, it may be the most famous of all the parables because it tells of two brothers. One who goes out and rebels, and one, the obedient, self-righteous one who's going to do everything that dad wants. A couple of weeks ago, we began this new series, Storytime with Jesus, and that first week, we looked at the first parable from Luke chapter 15. It's the parable of the lost sheep, and we talked about how the shepherd goes after that one lost sheep. Even though 99 are still found, the shepherd goes after the one, and we saw how the heart of God is for lost people. And like I said, this chapter in Luke chapter 15 is actually three parables that are all about lostness. You've got the lost sheep is first, and then we skipped over the parable of the lost coin. The woman searches her whole house for one of the ten coins that she lost. And now we get to this parable of, it's like the previous two, except it's much longer. It's got a lot more details to it, and it's one of the two sons. Who are lost. It's better known as the parable of the prodigal son. And I went looking through a bunch of Bible translations, and all the new translations instead use the title Parable of the Lost Son. And I thought, well, that makes more sense because what the heck does prodigal mean? I have no idea what prodigal meant. I thought it meant lost or wayward. I looked it up. If you're with me and you're like, don't really know. Prodigal is a person who spends money in a recklessly extravagant way. 
And so now I know better, and you know better, and we can move forward. And at times, I can tell, call my one son a prodigal when his boot touches the ground in Shields Sporting Goods. The reckless, extravagant spending begins. So anyway, the, this parable that we're going to look at, it has three main characters. And so we learn a lot more about just the plight of the prodigal son and his experience. We also see the response of the father and of the elder brother. And they give us insight into the heart of God and into the heart of prideful sinners. In this parable, we're going to learn about rebellion, repentance, restoration, self-righteousness, and resentment. So let's dive in. Like I've said, we're in Luke chapter 15. We are picking up the story in chapter 11. So chapter 11 kind of gets us the setup. Every parable, you kind of have to get grounded in, okay, what is going on in the story? Who's the main characters? What's going on? Uh, So verse 11 and 12. Jesus continued after these other two parables. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. So as the youngest, he's probably a young man, and he sees that dad's got a decent amount of money, but he's not going to get it unless dad is dead. But he wants that money now. And so he tells his dad, I want you to either liquefy your assets or give me what you have so that I can turn it into cash because I want to be able to live how I want to live, independent, on my own, right now. Even while you're still alive, I want my inheritance today. It's kind of a crazy request. It's not completely unheard of in Jesus' time. There's some other writings that talk about when people do this, but it absolutely breaks relationship when, obviously, a child says, hey, I want everything that's yours so that I can leave you and go do my own thing. That's something a little crazy in my family. My grandma was like 85 And my aunts, uncles, and many of my cousins started labeling her things. So you'd go into her house and you'd see on the back of a lamp, tape, and it'd say like, Lindsay. And you'd be like, what? Like half of her house was spoken for and she lived for 15 more years. And so I look at that story and in my mind I'm like, that's kind of outrageous. Who's claiming her belongings while she's still around and in fine health? That's what's going on in this story. And we need to understand, this is kind of an outrageous ask. But what's almost more outrageous is that the father is like, okay. And he does it. There's no pushback here. So the father divides up the estate. And he gives to the child what he asks for. And we don't know, did he sell land that he had to get cash? Or how did he do this? But somehow he gives a large sum of money to this child. As the child asks, I want to be done. I want to be my own man with all the stuff that I'm going to have anyway when you die. The next part of this story, we get to the rebellion and the result of the rebellion. Because we all understand, when there is rebellion, there's always going to be a consequence to that rebellion. And so we pick up in Luke chapter 13. Or chapter 15 in verse 13 now. Not long after that, of course, it didn't take him long. He counted his money. The younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, 
and there squandered his wealth in wild living. That's the prodigal aspect. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. So the son takes off and he squanders. He spends it all. And this wild living is all we're told about what he did. But I think we all can fill in the blanks. When I think of wild living, my mind jumps to Las Vegas. You want to do some wild living, you can go. That You want to squander some money fast, go to Las Vegas. You can spend your money on anything you could dream spending money on. Flashy lights, they're everything in culture says this is where fun happens. This is what your mom and your dad are keeping from you. Head out there, go to the big lights, bring a wad of cash. You'll never have more fun in your life than going and spending your time there. That's what I imagine wild living. Maybe you've got a different vision of what it looks like. Uh, he perhaps went out to this big town and bought a fancy donkey and got some fancy robes to show off. Somehow he blew through his money. And however he spent it, what he was going after was he was trying to get all that life had available to him. But like so many of us have already experienced ourselves, what it did is it sucked all the life out of him. It left him high and dry, living with the pigs, and actually looking at what he was feeding them and wishing that their food was his food. Now, I doubt any of you could ever imagine yourselves wishing that you could fill your stomachs with pig's food, but I bet you can imagine what wild living looks like for yourself. Maybe you recognize how you lived for a season of time in your own life. When you were younger, when you put God aside, or maybe you didn't know God at all, and you were trying to figure out what was going to make you happy, what was going to scratch that itch that just like, I hear of everybody else having a great time and living life to the fullest, and I want to do that for myself. I know I had that experience myself in my early 20s. I was at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. It's a lot like Iowa, where beer flows freely. And it's all about just like, I need to figure out how to have fun. And so there's these images when you get onto a college campus. This is what fun looks like. And you chase after those things. And what I found is at the end of college, I realized I didn't have any like success in life where I was like, I'm happy and I'm connected. I was lonely. I didn't have any real friends. And I just had some really silly memories that were like, that's just dumb. Many of you have experienced that or maybe you've watched your kids experience that. Like I said, this parable resonates today very, very well. And so young people across cultures have been doing this very same thing though. They get out of mom and dad's house and they go searching for their own happiness. Sometimes they chase it with drunken weekends or meaningless sex with strangers. Perhaps it's numbing out with drugs or blowing money gambling in the hopes of winning big. But whatever it is, it's a pursuit of something that's out there that must be better than what's here that mom and dad or my family has raised me in. And what most all of us who are adults now understand is that what's out there isn't better. 
is just trying to take from you. It's just a trap. This illusion of happiness that's going to suck away all your money and leave you feeling empty. Weekend parties, hookups, just lead to loneliness and an empty wallet. And that's why this parable is one that I'm teaching today. So we get to the next piece of this parable. Repentance and return. Finally, he hits rock bottom, essentially. And that's where we get in verse 17. It says, when he came to his senses, I like that phrase, when he came to his senses, he realized how ridiculous his situation was. He said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I'm going to set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. So the son, in hitting this rock bottom moment, finally gains a little bit of clarity. Maybe you've been there. You have that moment where you're like, what I'm doing has not been working. He sees that this life that's out there wasn't at all what it was cracked up to be. It's not what he expected. And thinking that home was so boring and terrible, he looks back and he goes, that wasn't so bad. Even my father's servants had food to spare. And so he decided to return. But he also knows that he had done some massive relational damage. So he's already preparing what he's going to say. Maybe teenagers, you've been in that situation. You know you're in trouble and you're returning home. And you're like, okay, I better have a speech ready because they're going to ask me what the heck I was thinking. You guys remember doing that as teenagers. You're like, okay, I'm going to have to say this and this, and here's going to be my little lie or spin on the truth. Like you, you prepare yourself for this hard conversation because you know that mom or dad is going to be so upset they're going to read you the riot act. You better be prepared. But more than just an apology... This prodigal actually believes that his leaving has cost him his sonship. That he knows that he's just going to have to go back and hope that dad will take him to be a servant. The best he's hoping for is that he gets the status of servant so that he has food to eat in the midst of this drought. Because even that would be better than what this world had ultimately left him with. So he swallows his pride, something so many people have a hard time doing. And he begins the long trek home. When you think about your own story, did you have a moment, you know, maybe where you recognize this isn't working? A single moment where you said, okay, I need to go back to the life that I knew, back to the faith that I was raised in. Maybe it literally was back home with mom and dad. For some people, it's a series of events that just kind of lead them away from what they thought they were chasing. I know that's my story. It wasn't one thing, but a series of events that led me back home with God. And what's interesting with this moment, and in so many stories, is that it's often when people feel like they are at the bottom and they have proven to be a total failure. There's definitely this feeling of shame that accompanies people who've gone out, chased happiness, and been left with nothing. Right? You've got this trap, this illusion. Look at how great life could be if you just leave the faith of your family and go chase after what the world has. 
the world sucks you dry, and you're left feeling like a failure. Like, how could I have fallen for it? And meanwhile, Satan's laughing because he's like, you fell for the oldest trick in the book. I've been doing this with people for generations, for millennia, across cultures. People have been falling for this trick that there's something better out there. And then I hope that in their shame, I can keep them from ever having the strength and fortitude to turn and go back home. Some people know that where they landed is no good, but they're too prideful to turn back and say, I need to go back to where I came from. He holds them in their shame. The prodigal was said, you know what? It doesn't matter. I am going home. And that's the exact moment where God is waiting to meet people when they turn and they start heading back to where they came from, their home, their family. And that's what we're going to see now. So the story now turns to where this child is received. And he expects, remember, to have this pushback from dad. He's expecting to have to explain himself right away. But instead what we see is that he's quickly restored. In verse 20, we read, So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. This is the key passage. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. I love that line. This father of mine who was dead, is alive again. He was lost and is found. The father sees him off in the distance. Who knows, was he looking for him? Did he, every afternoon, did he just look out, hoping, yearning for his son to return? We don't know. But he sees him and he does what fathers wouldn't have done. It would have been shameful. He takes off running. He doesn't care. He's not waiting for the apology. He wants restored relationship with that boy. So he meets him and he hugs and he kisses him. And he doesn't say, <clears throat> you did some damage. And you know what? You're going to have to work to make this right. You owe me. You need to do this. No, instead, he restores sonship immediately. He says, get the ring, get the robe. These are symbols of being in the family, of being the son. This, this uh, relationship is instantly restored. Son, just because you walked away from me doesn't mean that you stopped being my child. I love you. I'm so happy that you came home. I'm so glad that you came back. There's nothing you could do. I don't care that you spent it all. None of those questions are asked because they don't matter. Parents, you understand Exactly how this dad would have been feeling. It doesn't matter the kind of drug bender that your child's on for years, strung out in a street. When they come home, you're not asking questions about the details. You're just glad to have them home. And that's what we see as the heart of the Father God. 
No matter how we run off, no matter how we go chasing what the world has, no matter what we get ourselves into, God really doesn't care. He just wants you back home with Him. He wants you to be a part of the family. He just wants to restore and redeem that father-child relationship. He wants to wrap His arms around you and say, I love you and that love never left. Yes, you left me, but my love for you has always remained there. It's this incredible picture of God's incredible, extravagant love. That's why Tim Keller, famous pastor who recently passed away, wrote a book and he said, okay, this parable shouldn't be called the parable of the prodigal son. He wrote entitled his book, The Prodigal God, because of the reckless, extravagant spending of our God on us. His extravagant love poured out on us in a way that we don't deserve, in a way that we look at it and go, why does he do that? Because he is God and he's good and he loves us so much that he has this outrageous love that no matter how many times we walk away from him in return, he's always there with arms wide open ready to give us a hug and to put the robe back on us and say, you are my child. Talk about an unexpected reception from the prodigal's perspective. He's planning on being met with this bitterness and instead he's met with unconditional love. And he's told how he has this value by being given the ring, the robe, and the celebration. Everything the father does is completely rooted in grace. It doesn't matter, like I said, that this child made a miserable mess. The father's character is to wrap his arms in love. The child has returned. That's all that matters. Now, when we look at this reception and restoration from a spiritual standpoint, we see a couple of things here. First, this parable doesn't get into the nitty-gritty of every detail. So we can't say, well, did the son ask for forgiveness? How did, you know, repentance work? All those things. That's not the meaning of this parable. But what we do see is in our spiritual world, repentance means turning away and going away from our sin and towards our God. We absolutely see that literal picture in this story. We see a turning of where the son comes to his senses and decides to go home, to go back to God. That's his heart of repentance. He doesn't want to go stay where he was. He wants what the father has for him. And it also paints this glorious picture of God who wants to receive us home. So no matter what you've done, this is the final thing on this point, no matter what you've done, no matter what your kids have done or your grandkids have done, nobody's ever too far to ever be restored with Jesus. The heart of God is that he's waiting for these kids, these prodigals, to return home. However, this story, if it ended here, it'd be a really sweet story. You got a little bow wrapped up, they're having a feast. But there's a second brother, and we can't stop without looking at his self-righteous, resentful response. The older brother's none too pleased that, you know what, you left. You stopped helping around the house. You took, dad sold land so that you could go take your money and blow it on who knows what. 
And now you come back here? Honestly, from a very humanistic standpoint, I understand why this guy was upset. Let's read his response, verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. It would have been very shameful for the older brother to not join in this reception. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat. I laugh at that phrase. You never even gave me a young goat. Like that's what he's upset by. So I could celebrate with my friends. I never got a party, Dad. You gave him all the money and now you're giving him a giant party. But when this son of yours, what does that communicate? He's not feeling like this is his brother. This son of yours, who squandered your property, and he fills in the wild living part with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? You can hear the rage. You can hear how it's just so unfair. He's none too excited about his brother's return. And while Jesus is showing us in this parable the heart of the self-righteous, what he's doing is he's showing us that there are some people who don't really think that they need the grace of the Father. There are some people, they read this story, and they resonate very dearly with the prodigal son, and they say, yeah, that was me. Praise God for his grace. But there's others who are like, those people drive me nuts. And then they just come in here, covered in tattoos, dressed all goofy, stinking like alcohol, thinking that they're going to be forgiven, that they have access to God. Some people don't like that too much. The Pharisees of Jesus' day, that's who he's speaking to in this passage. You know, remember at the beginning of Luke chapter 15, it said Jesus was hanging out with sinners and tax collectors. The religious people didn't like it, so he told them these parables. Well, in this parable of the two sons, the, or the tax collectors, the sinners, they're the younger brother, the prodigal. The religious people who hate that the sinners are getting time with Jesus, they're kind of, they know as Jesus is telling this story, he's saying, you guys are in the position of this elder brother. You're in the position of saying, I'm none too happy that you're okay with them. They haven't done all that I've done. They haven't earned your pleasure the way that I have earned it through my obedience. What they don't recognize is that none of us can earn God's grace. None of us can earn salvation. It's all a gift given. Instead, they're trying to rely on themselves, and so they're just irritated. So we have this massive contrast. The prodigal returns, and the father says, come home. And the religious elite say, get out of here. You made your bed, now lay in it. And the same is true in churches today around this world. Father's arms are still saying, come home. 
And maybe you've heard stories of people that they come to church for the very first time. They build up the courage to say, I'm actually willing to go try a church. They don't know what to do, so they just show up. And there's, you know, always somebody at the door who's like, who are you? You're not dressed right. You don't know this. You're covered in tattoos. You reek of cigarettes. I've, heard, I've read in stories where missionaries will say they've heard, you know, seen these experiences where people have truly been turned away at the door by church people. God's arms are wide open saying, I'm so glad you're coming home. And church people are saying, get out of here. Praise God, I have not experienced that at this church. Let's never let that be the story of this church. If somebody shows up at this church and they are completely drunk, reek of cigarettes, dressed completely inappropriately, let's say, come sit by me because we've got a God to introduce you to. Welcome home. That's what we're called to do as God's children. If we know that's the heart of the Father, then that should be our heart. Let us never be accused of being like the older brother. This is how the story ends, verse 31 and 32. My son, the father said to the elder, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. He's saying, you're still going to get these things. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Notice how that phrase gets repeated again. Jesus is making it very clear. This is the crescendo of the entire chapter. That ultimately, people who are far from God are spiritually dead. That's what Ephesians tells us. That we are dead in our trespasses. And when we are found, when we return to God, when we are given spiritual life, there's a renewal, there's a restoration there. That's when all of heaven rejoices, as we saw in the parable of the lost sheep. That's why in this story, the celebration is because of that one child who returned home. That's what we as Christians are called to celebrate. So, who are you in this story? You know, we've got, obviously, none of us are the father, okay? Don't think that you're the father in this story. That's reserved for God. But we've all at some point, some level, been the prodigal before in our lives. In some way, all of us have rebelled against God for a season. It looks different for each one of us. But we all have our times where we push away from God. And we also have all been like the older brother in this story. We've all had that you're not a part of us vibe probably at some point where somebody showed up and they just rubbed us the wrong way and we're like, ah. And we need to repent of that. We need to say, I don't ever want to be like that. No matter how different that person is than me. No matter how much they rub me the wrong way. We need to have the heart of the Father. And we need to say, I never want to be like the older brother in this story. I never want to think that I've earned it for myself and now they need to earn it for themselves. We need to instead say, I want to rejoice because you have been brought to life again. And so one thing I love, an application of this message I was thinking about, especially from that last verse, this child of mine who is dead is now alive. He was lost and now he's found, is the picture of baptism, right? 
When we get to baptism, baptism is a picture of dying to our sins when we go underneath the water and then being raised to newness of life in God when we come out of the water. And so I think it's interesting. We get this word picture so often of death to life. We see it in these parables. We see it in baptism. If you have been following God for a time but you've never been baptized, I encourage you, sign up on the bulletin and let me know, hey, you know what, Ryan? I want this symbol. I want the community to have a celebration. Let's kill the fattened calf because I was lost and now I'm found. That's what baptism is. It's the community of God coming together and celebrating when the lost are found. So if you have been far from God and you're like, I know that was my life, but you have been found, you've put your faith and your trust in God, you are experiencing the newness of life, then we want to celebrate that. And we do that through baptism. If you've never been baptized, I encourage you strongly, sign up for that. We'll probably be having this baptism service sometime end of March, April, May, okay? I know we've already got a couple of people who want to be baptized, so you won't be the only one. But there are some of you I know who haven't been baptized yet. I encourage you, after hearing this message, hearing about the heart of the Father, who no matter how long you were gone or how far you went away, was there with open arms when you returned to say, welcome home, welcome into the family. You are my child, you are loved. You should have that experience, that celebration, that rejoicing of renewal of life of being baptized. So, in conclusion, these are the things we remember from this message. First, God's love is extravagant. He looks for lost people in ways that we never would, and he welcomes them back with open arms. And you are never too far from God. Our experience as sinners, we all sin, we all rebel, we all turn from God, but at no point have you ever gone too far away. And finally, rejoice when sinners come home. We want to be a church that is so welcoming and so loving when people walk in here who are different than us. We simply want them to know the heart of our God. He has accepted us, and we want them to know that He accepts them as well. They simply repent, ask for forgiveness, and put their faith in Jesus for their salvation. You do those things, and we trust the rest of the pieces are going to fall into place. We don't have to tell them the next step of their process. We trust the Holy Spirit's going to do that for them. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for giving us this story, this encapsulation of your love for us, your heart for us. God, that you, like we see our own rebellious children who go astray, and we understand we can't fix it for them. We can't make choices for them. We can't tell them what to do. To a certain point, we watch our kids make their own choices. And you've done the same thing with us. You've given us the freedom to live our lives how we want. But so many of us have followed the bait of Satan in that there's better out there. God, I pray for those that we have in our families, our friends, that we know are in that place right now where they're out doing the wild living thing. And we pray for their souls, God. We pray that they would come to their senses, that they would recognize that what they're chasing isn't actually giving them what they want, love and peace and acceptance. And so, Jesus, we pray right now for those who aren't in this room 
that they would have that moment that what they're doing isn't working and that they would return home. I pray, God, that you would give us boldness and courage to speak words of invitation to people, to speak words of life over people, to say, come on back. You should try this out. There is love here. What you're looking for, you're not finding it, but you can find it in relationship with God, with relationship of a church family. God, for those of us in this room right now, maybe there are some prodigals in this room right now who are far from you, that they recognize that they have not returned. They're hearing this message and it resonates with them, God. I pray right now that they would have the courage to repent and to return to you, to take that step that says, God, I want you because what I'm doing isn't working. I pray, God, that you would forgive us for those times we're the elder brother, for those times that we're judgmental, for the times that we push people away because they don't look like what we think a Christian is supposed to look like. God, may this church be the most loving, accepting, welcoming place for people who are far from you to experience your love and your grace. Fill this building week by week, God, with prodigals are returning home. May that be our prayer, God. We thank you that you answer prayer. We thank you that you hear prayer, God, and now work in our midst. Would you please stand with us as we sing this final song?